Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs. We're up to chapter two of book three of Hail and Farewell, which is book 16 of the Hemingway list. Very good, everybody. Um, <clears throat> what did Tech Riffic have to say about this one? Father, where is Prince Gardens? Prince's Gardens? Is it the first turning or the second? Do you think he will be able to persuade Jim Brown to use models? And if he does, will the Academy accept his picture in May? To actually choose to put pen to paper and jot down this piffle is astonishing in its arrogance and self-importance. Who cares today and who cared then? Sheer agony on the heart and mind to read his babblings. Sheer agony. I couldn't agree more. It is... Like, you start to think that, like, it's so bad that it's it gets to the point where you're like, wait, are we being too harsh on this person who maybe is, you know, highly autistic or something like that? Um, and we're just saying, we're just berating them with how boring their drivel is, but maybe they are just highly fixated on something and neurodiverse in a different way from all of us. Um, and we should just cut them some slack or something. I don't know. That's where I'm at now, like, because I almost come out the other end of just hating on it so much that I'm like, oh, what? It, it can't be real. Like, it can't be real that this is this bad. Anywho, chapter two. Myself, an elderly man lying in an armchair, listening to the fire, is a far better symbol of reverie than the young girl that a painter would place on a stone bench under the sunlit trees. Myself, trying to remember if it were on our way back from Prince's Gardens or a few days afterwards, that I begged money from my father to buy drawing materials, remembering everything put but the dates that a pencil was never out of my hand, and that as soon as family criticism was exhausted, professional criticism was called in. Jim was invited to dinner, but a bad cold kept me in bed. Terrified lest my drawings should be forgotten, as he descended the staircase, voices reached me, and when the front door closed, I listened, expecting somebody to come up to tell me what Jim had said. But nobody came. And when I went shyly to my mother next morning, her news was bad. After dinner, my sketches had been shown to him, but he did not seem to think much of them, and on my pressing my mother to tell me more, I dragged the truth from her, that he considered girls riding bicycles showing a great deal of stocking a low form of art. He only likes Raphael, Michelangelo and Rubens, my father said, and he invited me to come to the National Gallery, and I followed him from masterpiece to masterpiece, humble and contrite, but resolute in my persuasions that he must come with me to Drury Lane and buy some plaster casts. He seemed to look upon the money thus expended as wasted, and when he came to the bedroom, that I had converted into a studio, he glanced around the walls, shocked at my crude attempts to draw the Venus de Milo, the Disco Bolas, and some busts. He did not refuse to send me the Kensington School of Art, but he sent my brother with me, and this jarred a little, for I looked upon my wish to learn drawing as a thing peculiar to myself, and my brother was so subaltern to me, and seemed so utterly unlikely to understand a work of art that I looked pityingly over his shoulder until one day the thought gilded into my mind that his drawing was as good as mine, if not better, and if that were so, what hope was there for me to become an artist, an exhibitor in the Royal Academy, 
an exhibitor of pictures like Jim's Julius Caesar overturning the altars of the Druids, for, even if I did learn to draw and to stipple, it did not seem to me that I should ever be able to imagine figures in all positions as Jim did, and I despaired. Youth is a very unhappy time, art and sex driving us mad, and our parents looking upon us with stupid, unconscious eyes. My father must have been ashamed of his queer, erratic son, and could have entertained little hope that eventually I would drift into a respectable and commonplace end. We all want our children to be respectable, though we may not wish to be respectable ourselves, and as he walked to the House of Commons, a short, thick-set man with a long Determined mouth set in a fixed expression, his hands moving a little in little gestures to to his thoughts, he must have often asked himself what new caprice would awaken in me. Would I tell him that I had decided to take up literature or music as a profession? There was no knowing which would be my next choice, and either was equally ridiculous. For in me at that time there was as little idea of a tune as there was of a sentence. It was impossible for me to grasp the different parts of speech or the use of the full stop to say nothing of the erudite colon. As he turned me over in his mind, he must have remembered his own brilliant school days, coming sadly to the conclusion that I must go into army, if he could get me into the army. That very sympathetic asylum for booby sons, so that our soldiers may not be altogether too booby, the War Office has decreed a certain amount of ordinary spelling and arithmetic and history to be essential. And to get such, as I, through examinations, there are specialists. Somebody must have exalted jurors, jewellers above all men, for my father came home one evening with the news that jewellers had pushed men through who other tutors had said would never be able to pass any examinations and never get their living except with the labour of their hands. The record of the thaumaturgist was 1753 and my father reflected that if there were miracles that even jewellers couldn't perform, he would at least redeem Alfred Place from the annoyance of seeing my trick riding on a bicycle up and down the street. And jewels would often save, would also save me from the Egertons and daughters of small tradesmen living in Hammersmith, whither some other wastrels and myself were wont to go to sup on Sundays. Alma and Kate were on the stage, and photographs of Alma in tights and Kate in short skirts were left about the house, and disgraceful letters turned up in the blotting book in the drawing room. He was a man of action rather than words, and putting a season ticket into my hand, he bade me away to Jules in the Mary Marlbone Road to one of the little houses lying back from the main road. <clears throat> As I passed up the strip of garden under the aspens, I often caught sight of Jerlis old withered face blotted against the bow window and very often met his wife and a tall and not ill-looking woman about thirty she seemed to always be going up and down the pathway at that time almost anything was enough to make to wait to awaken an erotic suggestion and i began to wonder if she kept trysts with any of the young men sitting on either side of the long mahogany tables bent over the books and slates it seemed to me that there was warrant for the supposition, for as soon as old Jaws finished a lesson, he went to the window and stood there, his bald head presenting an irresistible attraction for flies, a dangerous attraction for Jaws, 
was quick with his hand. It is probable that Mrs. Jerl's trysts were with the butcher, baker, the grocer, for besides the half-dozen young men who arrived at ten o'clock every morning, Jerlers took in several boarders, and there were never less than ten men sitting down to the midday meal, among them Dick Jerlis. All We all respected old Jerlis, a distant... Reserved gentleman and knowledgeable beyond the limits of his craft, but we laughed at Dick for his long red whiskers and moustache and his vulgar and familiar manners. We used to charge him in private on. We used to charge him in pri- on in private on what foundation I know not probably none, with being a money lender's tout, and no one cared to take a lesson from him, feeling him to be a fake one who had acquired just enough education to overlook our sums or our construe or to construe a Latin text with us, feeling that if he were to ask a question we might place him in a quandary. The seventeen hundred and fifty three young men at the Messrs Jerls had passed into the army owed their success to the diligence of his brother and to the solemn Swiss who taught modern languages in the back room. Out of it he came every hour, a red handkerchief hanging out of his tail pocket. I will travel you now, and my chair tilted. I used to watch him, wondering the while what kind of death each one of his pupils would meet on the battlefield, worried by the thought that my lot might be to die in defence of my country, or be wounded in her defence, which was worse still. It seemed to me that myself was my country. But having no alternative to propose to my father, I accepted the army. All professions were equally repugnant to me. I could not see myself as a doctor, or as a barrister, or anything except perhaps a gentleman writer. I did not dare to tell my father that I would not go into the army, or it did not occur to me to say to him, you went to the east for five years, and when you returned home did little else but ride steeplechases. In many little ways I lacked courage and preferred procrastination to truth. I could not be put into the army unless I passed the examination, and I realised that to miss passing no more was necessary than to read the sportsman under the table and spend most of the afternoon at the tobacconists round the corner. An affable man with a long flowing moustache like Dick Jurler's and some knowledge of betting enough to have a, a book on the big races, laying the odds in shillings with his customers' cabbies from the rank. And while he teased out the half ounces of shag, we discussed the weights, the speed and the stamina of the horses. We laid the odds and took them, and at the end of the half year, I had won five or six pounds. One day Lord Charlemont mentioned a horse as certain to win the derby, Pretender, wasn't it? The tobacconist bet in shillings, half-crowns and dollars, but he would take me round to the public house and introduce me to the great bookmaker who came there to meet his customers on Thursday and Friday. Pretenders won, and the Monday after the race, the great bookie invited me behind the urinal and took took ten five-pound notes out of his pocket, fifty pounds, some of money that enabled me to eat, drink and smoke on terms of equality with Colville and Belford, Two young men who were fast becoming my friends, Belford, a handsome, high-class little fellow, bright brows and brown hair, a high bridge nose, the mouth a little pinched, the chin a little too forwards, sharp teeth, a pale complexion, and a high voice. He was going into the cavalry and lived with his mother and sister at the top of the Albert Road. 
and as I lived at the bottom of the Exhibition Road, it made very little difference whether I took the Exhibition Road or Albert Road. There was a shortcut at the end, round by some cottages with thatched roofs, which have long ago disappeared. We made friends in this walk, and he asked me to dine with him, and we went to the theatre. Later, he introduced me to his mother and sister, and a very distinct picture these two women have left my mind, upon my mind. The mother, frail, reserved and dignified, with fair hair, about to turn grey, parted in the middle and brushed on either side of her thin temples. She must have worn a long gold chain, and she was always in black. The daughter had her brother's high-bridged nose, and her manner was showy, the opposite of her mother's, and I liked to find them sitting on either side of the fireplace after dinner. Now Colville was quite different from Belford, a South, South Saxon, if ever there was one, his ancestors having been on the land probably since Hengist and Horsa came, a man of medium height, of good trim, figure, and military bearing, for his thoughts were always on the army, and his talk was of tunics and of buttons and epaulets, and very proud he was of his great military moustache, which he stroked pensively with his little card, crabbed hand. He was often a truffet's getting his hair shampooed and cut closely about his small, well-turned head and narrow temples, and from truffet's he often walked to his tailor's. He had 36 pairs of trousers when I first knew him, and his charm was his cheerful disposition and his somewhat empty but merry laugh. He was the first man I ever met who kept a woman, but that was a secret, and Belfort used to wonder how he did it on 500 a year. He told us that he gave Minnie Granville three, reserving two for himself, and if he ran short he returned to Buckingham and lived free of cost till his next quarter's allowance allowed him to return to the clandestine little house in St. John's Wood. He envied him his lady, and on fine afternoons used to leave the confectioner's shop where he had luncheon and go forth to St. John's for about an hour before returning to Jules. The two of us would loiter, admiring the greenswood shelving down the canal's edge, wondering if Minnie Granville were true to Colville. We wished Colville well, but we remembered that if she remained faithful to him, she would never become a celebrated light of love, and we should be deprived of the honour of having known her in her early days. We had heard that Mabel Gray lived in Lodge Road and turned into it, wondering which house was hers, and not daring to inquire, we searched South Bank and North Bank, and talking of her ponies, we gazed at the precious, at the pretty balconies, hoping to catch a sight of her, or her great rival, Baby Thornhill. Everybody knew these two ladies by sight, for photographs of Baby Thornhill and Mabel Gray were everywhere in every album, and many other beautiful women were famous. Lizzie Weston, the sheep, as she was called, a tall woman with gold hair and a long, mild face, and Kate Cook, too, was a famous, was as famous perhaps as any Mabel Gray, always except Kitty Carrow. Margaret Gilray and Sally Gills, her cousin, lived in South Bank and were often on their balconies tending the birds, giving their canaries and finches seed and water. A favourite bird was a mule goldfinch and canary, a green-brown bird that would make take seed from the, his mistress's pretty tongue. Belfort brought opera glasses one day, and that day we were happy boys. The pony carriage was at the door. We shall see them getting to it if we wait. Belfort wanted to get back to Jules, and I should have not have been able to persuade him to remain if the ponies had not presented a peculiar attraction, fiery chestnut mares, 
foaming at the bits and swishing their long tails, a dangerous pair of ladies' hands to drive through crowded streets, and the longer they were kept waiting, the more restive they became, rearing over against the little groom or striking out with their hind legs. And as soon as the ladies stepped out into the carriage, before Sally was seated, they bounded forward, overthrowing the groom, and what disaster might not have happened if we had not rushed forward to their heads, it is impossible to say. Jesus. The ponies have not been sufficiently exercised, that is all, Miss Gilray, and I begged Belford to smooth Miss Gills, soothe Miss Gills, who was very much frightened. It would have been splendid to offer to drive the ponies into Regent Park and bring back Spark and Twinkle Chastened, but Belford said that we must be getting back to Jerls and we regretfully bade them goodbye. It seemed to us the merest politeness to call next day to inquire. We were received by the cousins platonically, of course, but even boys get their chances and the idea came to Sally Gills to invite Belford and me to supper and to come to Jerls himself herself with the invitation, stopping the ponies before Jill's establishment and sending her little groom up the pathway with the note. I was at the window and how my heart beat at the sight of him. Wearing the livery of his mistress proudly, he stopped Mrs. Jill's, who was coming down the pathway at that moment with her white Pomeranian dog, and after a talk with her, old Jill's called me aside and began his lecture. He could no longer consent to waste my father's money and felt constrained to inform him of the company I kept. But Mr. Jerls, the ponies were kicking. My father would never have spoken to me again if I had not gone to their heads. And Miss Giles was so frightened. Old Jerls seemed to accept my excuse as valid, and although it was quite out of the question that such ladies should send their grooms with notes to his front door, still the incident might be overlooked, were it not that I showed no disposition to learn anything since I came. He reminded me that he had frequently to take the sportsman out of my hand. I was glad to hear from him that there was no chance of my passing for the army, but I wished him to withhold his opinion from my father, and after some debate he promised me that I should have another chance. You must mend your ways, he added, but it was only by reading the sportsman under the table that I could escape from the horrid red tunic with buttons down the front and the belt, and if I were caught with it again, Giles would write to my father, and every day I expected to see him coming towards me with threatening bro brow, and to, and to hear him say, I have received a very bad account of you from Giles. There was some justification for my fears, for he wore a troubled look, and I caught him in the whispered talk with my mother frequently. They ceased talking or spoke of indifferent things suddenly, and one night after dinner I heard him say that he was going to Ireland by the mail. The reason of this sudden departure was not mentioned, and my mother was so often agitated that her fluttered voice caused me no alarm. My father's sudden return from the front door to give me a sovereign did not awaken a suspicion. It seemed, however, to strike my mother's imagination, and a few days later, a wire came from her brother summoning us to Moor Hall. Something dreadful must have happened, she kept repeating to herself, and her talk was full of allusions to a letter she had received from her father. At last she confided to me that he had be, had written to her saying if she did not get a wire from him on a certain day she was to come at once. We got the morning papers coming off the boat and there was nothing about him in them, but the absence of news was not enough to reassure her and I felt there was something on her mind which she did not dare to speak. She does not appear again in my memory till we arrive at Bala. Her brother was waiting outside the gate and I saw him take her out aside 
and I heard him say, Mary, prepare for the worst. George is dead. We climbed on the car, Joe and my mother on one side, the driver sat on near Dickie, and I remember his back showing all the way against a grey sky, my mother wrapped in a brown shawl. Joe Blake is not so distinct to me, only his yellow Macintosh. Every now and again I heard the wail of my mother's voice, and I sobbed too, thinking of my father, whom I should never speak to again. At that time, same time I was conscious, and this was of a source of great grief to me, that my life had taken a new and unexpected turn. In the midst of my grief, I could not help remembering that my father's death had redeemed me from the army, from jewels, and that I should now be able to live as I pleased. That I should think of myself as such a moment shocked me, and I remember how frightened I was at my own selfish wickedness. And a voice that I could not restrain, for it was the voice of the soul, asked me all the way to Moor Hall if I could get my father back. Would I bring him back and give up painting and return to jewellers? I tried hard to assure myself that I was capable of this sacrifice, but without much success I tried to grieve like my mother, but I could not. We never grieve for anybody, parent or friend, as we should like to grieve, and are always shocked by our absent-mindedness at one moment weeping for the dead, at another talking of indifferent things or asking casual questions as to how the dead man died, and we only remember certain moments at will I can see myself and Joseph Appleby in my father's bedroom standing together by the great bureau at which he wrote, and in which he kept his letters. And I remember how my eyes wandered from Joseph to the empty bed. He had been removed from, to the next room, or perhaps he had died in the marriage bed. However this may be, Joseph Appleby told me that when he came to call the master, he was lying on his back, breathing heavily and thinking that it would be better not to disturb him. He had gone away, closing the door quietly, and when he returned an hour later, the master was lying just as he had left him, only he could catch no sound of breathing. So much do I remember precisely and somewhat less precisely that Joseph Appleby told me he had sent for the doctor. A dim thought hangs about in my memory that the doctor was in the neighbourhood. Be this as it may, the reason assigned for death was apoplexy. Two, three, and four days went by, and I remember nothing till somebody came into the summer room to tell my mother that if she wished to see him again, she must come at once. Well, they were about to put him into his coffin, and catching me by the hand, she said, we must say a prayer together. The dead man lay on the very bed which I was born. His face covered with a handkerchief, and as my mother was about to lift it from his face, the person who had brought us thither warned her from the other side of the white dimity curtains not to do so. He is changed, she said. I don't care, my mother cried, and snatched away the handkerchief, revealing to me the face all changed. And it is this changed face that lives unchanged in my memory. The three moments of the next day. The moment when Lord John Brown bade me goodbye on the way from Carnacan, the body had been brought there for high mass and was being carried back to Kiltomb. A cold March wind was blowing over the fields and he feared the journey around the lake. The moment when Father Lavelle called upon the people to hoist him on the tomb for him to speak his panegyric and the moment when the mason's mallets were heard closing the vault where the damn man would remain with his ancestors. One would like to say for centuries, but nothing endures in this world, not even our graves. I cannot remember who spoke after Lavelle, and afterwards the multitude began to disperse through the woods and along the shores of the lake, a great many lingering on the old stone bridge to admire the view. Of course, I was very principal. 
As I passed up the road, I felt many eyes fixed upon me, and conjectured that they were all wondering how much of my father's talent I had inherited, and if I would take up the running at the point where he had dropped out of the race. Among the hundreds of unknown, there were was here and there a known face, our carpenters, sawyers, gardeners and stablemen, all our servants from Deranani and Balioli, villages beyond the domain, over the hill, along the lake's edge, and of course I did not escape the inquisitive gaze of the men that used to row about the islands when Loch Corral was my adventure. They were probably thinking that I would do for them when I came to live in Moor Hall, and after these men were other faces known to me, but not so well known, the beaters whom I had seen rousing the Vrudok, the Woodcock, out of the covers of Derinrush, and it seems that when I turned from the dark road and walked up the lawn, some of the old tenants spoke to me. I have some recollection of being spoken to at the sundial, and I think their questioning eyes reminded me that the house on the hill was mine, and those who spoke to me and they, those who did not dare to speak to me were mine to do with as I pleased. Until the seventies island was feudal, and we looked upon the tenants as animals that lived in hovels round the bogs, whence they came twice a year with their rents, and I can remember that once when my father was in was his own agent, a great concourse of strange fellows came to Moor Hall in tall hats and knee breeches, jabbering to each other in Irish. An old man here and there could speak a little Irish, and I remember one of them saying, "Sure, they are only mount, mountainy men." Your Honour, and have no English, but they have the goics, he added with unction, and out of the tall hats came rolls of banknotes, so dirty that my father grumbled, telling the tenant that he must bring cleaner notes, and afraid lest he should be sent off on a long trudge to the bank. The old fellow thrust the notes into my father's hand and began jabbering again. He's asking for his docket, Your Honour, the interpreter explained. My father's clerk wrote out a receipt, and the old fellow went away, leaving me laughing at him, and the interpreter repeating, Sure, he's a mountainy man, Your Honour, and if they failed to pay their rents, the cabins they had built with their own hands were thrown down, for there was no pity for the man who failed to pay his rent, and if you thought that the bullocks would pay us better and rid our lands of them, cleaned our lands of tenants, is, is an expression I once heard, and I remember how they used to go away by train to the Claremorris in great batches, bawling like animals. There is no denying that we looked upon our tenants as animals, and they looked upon us as kings all in, in all the old stories. The landlord is a king. The men took off their hats to us, and women rushed out of their cabins, dro- dropping curtsies to us. The middle-aged women, the 70s, they cry a lot. What? Until... Until the seventies, the cry, long live to your honour, rings still in my ears, and the ceremonial rites flourished in Mayo and Galway in those days, and soon after my father's funeral, I saw the last of this custom. A middle-aged woman and her daughter and a small grey ass laden with two creels of young chickens were waiting at my door, the woman cursing the girl drawing a straw back about face shyly. She was not an ugly girl, but I had been to Lodge Road, and had seen Jim Brown's pictures. Everything was beginning for me, and everything was declining for my mother. She would have liked to linger by her husband's grave a little while, but I gave her no peace, urging the fact upon her that sooner or later we should have to go back to London. My delay, mother. We cannot spend our lives here, going to kill tomb with flowers, an atrocious boy, as I relate to him, but an engaging manner transforms reality as a mist or a ray of light transforms a landscape, and my mother died believing me to have been the best of sons, though I never sacrificed my convenience to hers. It will be admitted 
that that is the end we should all strive for. But the means are the means. An ancient saw this of ends and means which it will well be well to leave to others to disentangle. <sighs> Awakening from a long river, I asked myself where I left off in the absent-minded old woman telling a child of the part of the end of the day of the moor hall after my father's death was like a great lump of lid on my shoulder. My mother's grief increased by day by day and her health were to break down and it might be kept at moor hall for months. It was important to get her back to London and I think it must have been in the train that I heard of the army and that never appealed to me. I'd only consented to accept the army because I had nothing else to propose to my father. It was painting and an interest to me and the studio was sought as soon as I relied on London and my aspiration did not reach as high as a private studio. The naked was in my desire and drawing class would provide me with that. No examination would have required a Limerson Street bath. A Frenchman ran a little show and the Whistler was an attraction and as soon as the model rested I picked up my way through the easels and stood at the edge of the crowd that collected around the famous artist. His drawings on brown paper slips seemed to me very empty and casual, altogether lacking in the attitude of mind which interested me so much in Rossetti. His jokes were disagreeable to me. He did not seem to take art seriously, but I must have his disguised my feelings very well for he asked me to come to see him. Any Sunday morning, he said, I should feel find him at 96 Chain Walk. The very next Sunday, I went there, but there were pictures in the studio, and I went to the left to look up a melancholy portrait of my mother, and which he had just completed, and gathering nothing from it, I turned to another picture, a girl in white dress, dreaming by a chimney-piece, or almost Rossetti-like face, reflected in the mirror. Swinburne had translated her languor into verses, but there were printed around the frame, and while I read them, it was the discourse to his friends on the beauty of the Oriental art, and praise went sent me to the Japanese screen, but I could discover no correct drawing in it, and begged one of the visitors to tell me how faces represented by two or three lines and a couple of dots could be considered to be well drawn. He gave me a hurried explanation and returned to Whistler, who laughed boisterously while rattling ice drinks from glass to glass, and I think that I despised and hated him when he capped my somewhat foolish enthusiasm for the pre-Raphaelite painters with a comedic anecdote. I left his house irritated and somewhat unostentationally neglected him in the last class, allying myself openly and defiantly with the next celebrity in the form. Our class boasted another Olivilla. Olivia Maddox Brown, son of the great Ford Maddox Brown, a boy that came from Fitzroy Square, bringing with him such a reputation for genius that he paid no attention whatsoever to whistle a strange boy, stranger even than I. A long fat body buttoned on an overcoat, reaching to his knees, odd enough to win upright, but odd still when crouching on the ground in front of his drawing board. His right hand sketching rapidly, his left throwing black locks of hair from his face, of which he was little seen but a great hooked nose. I could not keep him out of my thoughts, for he seemed to me even more unfortunate than myself, less likely to win a woman's love, and at last my passion to know him overcame me, and I dared to speak to him. He engaged immediately in conversation, just as he wished to become my friend, and agreed to walk back to South Kensington with me. I remember the care with which I picked my words during his walk, and the object being to win him, it seemed to me to be a perfect safe to ask if he were in the life room in the academy. Academy. My surprise was great when he entered that he had no time to spare for the academy, all his mornings being employed upon six foot canvas to deform, transform, and wondering how he managed to give a visible shape to the idea so essentially that I asked him if he could explain the composition to me. He said that he would prefer to show me his picture, and I promised to call Fitzroy Square, but delayed going there from day to day to enlist too much desire to see him and his picture might wean him from his willingness to he had shown for my acquaintance and it was not till he asked me why I had not been to see him that I summoned sufficient courage to take tram to Gower Street before on my before me on the desktop was a handsome middle-aged man somewhat thick-set with graying hair and beard who said to me you have come to see Oliver haven't you divining one of Oliver's friends in me we met 
At the class in the Fulham Road, and he asked me to come to see his picture. And you are Oliver's father, I asked. Added a great painter, for I recognise Oliver and the handsome and the kindly eyes. Yes, yes. And he turned to Philandy me on a good care to come into the studio before going to see Oliver. Does he then think so much of Oliver that he puts me before his own pictures? I asked him myself whilst he pulled the easels forward and showed me his pictures. If I may make a remark, I said aloud, "Pray do." He said, "Your hands always seem a little heavy, but perhaps that is your style, as, as long necks are Rossetti's." He laughed in his beard and we ascended the great sloping staircase. His paintings in the morning said that adoring father in writes in the evening when he doesn't go to class. A volume of poems was mentioned and I asked if the manuscript had gone to the publisher. Olivia hesitates about sending it. Swinburne and Rossetti are publishing poetry and all the literature of the pre-Raphaelite movement and her tertho gone into verse. He drawled on telling me that Oliver had finished a prose romance about 350 pages and was about to begin another and a volume of short stories was mentioned. I ventured to inquire and the great painter quoted from his advice of his son Oliver doesn't waste your time on short stories you have six foot canvas in the morning and your novels and poems in the evening I was too overwhelmed to give any answer and Oliver paid no heed to his fond parents admonishment he seemed to take it for granted that he had not liked other men and I understood that having heard himself so often speak of as a genius he had accepted the fact that he was genius as you had come to accept the fact that he could speak and hear and walk but I who had been brought up in the belief that I was very stupid was astonished at my extraordinary good fortune and having met Oliver and who won his good opinion after all came with that may what may his wonderful father and still more wonderful son had thought me worth speaking to for a while and then remembering that Oliver was writing a novel I begged him to read me some of it if he weren't too busy he hesitated and might have been tempted if his father had not reminded him that luncheon would be ready in a few minutes. Father and son were condescending enough to ask me to stay to lunch, but I did not dare to say yes and descended the stairs regretting my shyness on the doorstep while trying to summon up courage to say on a second thought I'll come back to lunch. I besought Oliver to bring his manuscript down to the class and read it to us during the rest. He promised to do so on the following day when Mary Lewis left the pose and wrapped herself in a shawl, a shapely little girl she was, Whistler's model. She used to go over and talk to him during the rest. Oliver began to read and Mary sat like one in trance, her shawl slipping from her. And I remember her listening at, quite, as last, at last quite naked. And when the quarter of an hour had gone by, we begged Oliver to go on reading, forgetful of Whistler, who, had it, who sat in a corner looking as cross as an armful of cats. At uh, last, M. Bath was obliged to intervene, and Mary resumed the pose, a protégé French stuff, he muttered. But we were thinking of the story, and begged Oliver to take up the reading again, and at, at the ending of the sitting, and Whistler went away in the high dungeon, for Mary stopped behind to hear how the story ended, and a few moments later we crowded together, forgetful of the model, telling how Typhoid had robbed England of great genius, and after Oliver's death, my interest in the class declined. And that's the end of chapter two. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.